When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Hello, and thank you for listening to the History of World War II podcast, episode 235, an interview with Flint Whitlock about his latest book, Desperate Valor, Triumph at Anzio. Following up his previous books, Buchenwald, Hell on a Hilltop, The Depths of Courage, American Submariners at War with Japan, 1941-45, and The Fighting First, the untold story of the Big Red One on D-Day, Flint Whitlock, a former U.S. Army officer, editor of World War II Quarterly magazine, and contributor to numerous documentaries, has now written about one of the longest, hardest, and bloodiest battles of World War II. Lasting five months, just 40 miles from Rome, the Allies struggle mightily to hold on to their beachhead, while Field Marshal Albert Kesselring throws wave after wave of German soldiers at the narrow enemy position, trying to throw the Americans and British back into the sea, thus giving Hitler another Dunkirk. And Mr. Whitlock, thank you very much for being with us today. Uh, My pleasure, Ray. Thank you for uh, your interest in this subject. Yes, I absolutely loved reading your book, and uh, we're going to talk about it now. We're not going to give the full story away, because we certainly want people to take a look at it for themselves and and the the fascinating ending, but we'll just, uh, we'll talk about most of it today. So before we get started, if you could tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, and and some of your previous books. Okay, well, um, this book, um, Desperate Valor, is Book number 13 that's been published. Uh, it is, was published by DeCapo Press and uh, came out at the end of October 2018. Mm-hmm. And um, most of my books are World War II based. I have a, a few that, um, that aren't, but the bulk of them uh, have to do with World War II. Um, my first book was published in... 1992, and it was called Soldiers on Skis. My dad was in uh, the 10th Mountain Division uh, in World War II and fought in Italy. And uh, so I won. I, I, he never talked too much about his service, so I, mm. I started digging into it after he had passed away in the early 70s. And uh, I started interviewing veterans and... Uh, Years went by, and I was continuing to to uh, work on it, and, and finally in '92 it got published. Um, 
I was looking around because I got a lot of uh, positive feedback from that. From right. that, uh, uh, I decided to write a second book, and because I'm based in Colorado, I wanted another topic that uh, uh, more or less had uh, Colorado as a backstory, and came across the 45th Infantry Division, which was the Colorado and Oklahoma National Guard, mm-hmm. and um, and that book was called The Rock of Anzio, and um, that also got um, some very positive uh, reviews. And at that point, I decided that uh, I wanted to be a full-time uh, author and military historian. My background, I went to the University of Illinois, graduated with a degree in commercial art, graphic design. Uh, but I'd always been a, uh, a writer as much as a, as an artist. Um, I worked on uh, the school paper at Illinois. Uh, Roger Ebert was our editor. Wow. So um, he, was, he was quite a brilliant uh, young man. Um, and I learned a lot about uh, writing, taking uh, creative writing courses as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, I went into the Army after uh, graduation, uh, received an ROTC uh, commission and uh, served as an officer on active duty for five years with tours in West Germany and uh, one year in Vietnam. And then after I got out of the service, I uh, went into advertising and did that for about 30 years and, and got burned out on that. It right. it wasn't as glamorous as Mad Men has made it out to be. Um, I, I used to say that we, you know... Our, our agency was just like the one in Mad Men, except for all the drinking, smoking, and sex. Um, <laughs> so with, with that behind me, uh, after the success of um, my first two books, I said, um, gee, that's, that's what I'd like to do. And my wife said, well, you know, I think we can make that happen. So with her support, uh, we plunged mm-hmm. ahead. And uh, over the years, uh, managed to... Uh, turn out 13 books now. Okay. So uh, that, that's a little of my background. I've, I've been fortunate uh, because of that uh, to have been able to lead battlefield tours for the Smithsonian and National Geographic and other uh, organizations. Um, wow. I've uh, been uh, speaking around the country, uh, various uh, events for the last uh, 20 years or so. On military topics, and uh, uh, it's just it's you know I, my only regret is that I didn't um, change the career sooner right. <laughs> because it's been a blast. That's great, and, and if I may say, as someone who's read uh, World War II books since I've been fourteen years old, uh, I could I could definitely tell this is not your first book. Um, the way the story is crafted and the amount of sheer detail in it. Um, uh, I'm just going to let you know now that when I get to this part of the story that is World War II, I am totally going to be stealing from your book because you have everything in there. Uh, so I'm looking forward to having that as a <laughs> reference. I'm just letting you know now in case you want to sue me. But uh, but but the the way you crafted it, and if if I could um, come to this, um, you have a different, or it, it seems to me, you have a different take on the Battle of Anzio from from the way it's been perceived over the decades since the war. Could you tell us right. a little bit about that? Yeah, yeah. One of the things um, 
that's always struck me, and especially uh, in the research that I was doing, I kept coming across books and magazine articles that talked about the Allied operation at uh, Anzio. Um, for your listeners who don't know, Anzio is in Italy. Uh, it's about 40 miles south of Rome. Um, and I was always uh, a bit disturbed disturbed by the fact that um, so many of these books were, were calling the Anzio operation a failure. And I suppose if you look at it strictly from an offensive uh, operation, that's a conclusion that is easy to come to. Mm-hmm. But the more I thought about it, the more I realized that there was another story that almost every historian uh, was, was missing, and that was it was also a very successful defense where um, the, the Allied uh, invaders at Anzio, the British and the Americans, were basically pinned down in a very small area on the coast uh, where the Germans continued to, to beat the stuffing out of them um, for four months. Yeah. But at the end of that four months, the, um, the defenders at Anzio broke out, um, chased their, their tormentors, the Germans, away, and um, and were were the the people who liberated Rome uh, in June of '44, and I thought that was a story that had been either overlooked or totally disregarded. And I wanted to give credit to the incredible uh, staying power, if you will, of the Americans and British who were at Anzio and. Uh, there was really no hope of, of um, success uh, for four months um, when, until the, the breakout occurred. And uh, it's just a real testament to the, to the um, courage and uh, steadfastness of the Americans and British, which, like I said, had been pretty much discounted or, or overlooked by most of the other historians who've written about Anzio. Right. If I could add on to that real quick, and, I, and I'll try not to get too far uh, of our own story, but um, you make a good point because just because you you say or you give an order or you write down on a piece of paper, I want you to land here and push there, that doesn't mean it's going to happen. It's not like they landed with 200,000 men and um, they were able to land them all at once and the Germans just gave up. I mean... Yeah, I, I I don't I even though you explained it in your book, I still have a disconnect about why the Americans or why the Allies in general were so optimistic. I mean, Kesselring is there; he's a proven, effective uh, improviser. Um, there's only so much that the Allies are landing at this point. I I, I fail to see why it should have been to, to their mind such an easy uh, victory. Mm. Well, I I think by that point in the war, we're talking now end of 43, early 45, mm-hmm. the Allies um, in the Mediterranean theater, this was before the invasion of France, of course, um, right. had, had, the, um, had had a number of successes already. Uh, the landings in North Africa, although they didn't go well, initially, eventually chased Rommel and the and the Africa Corps uh, into a corner of Tunisia and defeated them. Uh, there was then the invasion of Sicily, which took a month to uh, 
to conquer, and then um, the invasion of southern Italy um, by the Americans and British, which, uh, again, you know, initially things didn't go well, but they they got their feet under them, and they were able to to push as uh, up north um, as 1943 was coming to an end. So I think there was every expectation that whatever the Allies did, it was going to be successful. It might not happen, you know, immediately, mm-hmm. uh, but it it would happen. And all we had to do was keep grinding away, and the Germans would would fall back. And Anzio kind of was a different script. Um, the Germans didn't do what the Allies thought they were going to do and uh, had planned for. Mm-hmm. And so uh, the Anzio operation kind of had to be uh, a rescue plan to uh, break the stalemate that had developed al- along the uh, Gustav line, about 100 miles south of Rome, that was anchored by Monte Cassino. So all of these little intricate uh, pieces are part of a larger puzzle, and they all had to fit together in order to uh, to make the whole thing work. And uh, when uh, when Anzio turned out to be another stalemate, uh, like the one at uh, at Casino and and the Gustav Line, mm-hmm. then uh, people began to wonder: Well, you know, is the strategy wrong? Are the troops wrong? Uh, what what's what's happening here? Why are we not as successful as we have been in the other? previous uh, amphibious operations. Well, I'm glad you brought that up because, one, until I read your book, I don't think I truly appreciated how many Germans, how many soldiers Kessel Ring at his disposal. I mean, it's not like they've got the the thinnest of uh, of numbers of troops or the thinnest uh, line in the Gustav line. I mean, it's, it's pretty significant, and he's got troops that he's able to pour against Anzio. But let's let's jump into this. So, like you said, the Allies have taken North Africa. They've taken Sicily. They've uh, managed to land on southern in southern Italy, and they're pushing up. But now, just like you said, they're banging their heads against the Gustav Line. They're not getting anywhere. They're suffering casualties. Something has to be done. Somebody's got to come up with something. What is the Allied plan to deal with this stalemate? Well, I think the the initial idea came from Mark Clark, who was. Mm-hmm. commander of the 5th U.S. Army, and uh, he had run it by his superior uh, Field Marshal Harold Alexander, who was a British officer, and uh, he he was a superior over Mark Clark. Mm-hmm. And um, Clark's idea was, was to have an end run. Okay, if, if we can't break through the Gustav line, if we can't overcome the German defenses from the west side of Italy to the east side, what are we going to do? And, and of course, with a peninsula, you know, you're, you're restricted in terms of your maneuver. But, of course, with a long coastline on either side of the peninsula, mm-hmm. it opens up all sorts of uh, possibilities for a flanking attack. And uh, Clark um, realized this, and, uh, and Alexander uh, thought, a flank attack, uh, an end run around the the uh, western end of the Gustav Line would be a good idea, and and uh, Churchill really liked the idea. Winston <laughs> Churchill, the Prime Minister of of Great Britain, and so Churchill be kind of became the the driving force, and and uh, mm-hmm. he put a lot of time and effort into um, doing whatever he could to make uh, what 
ended up being called Operation Shingle, uh, mm-hmm. a success. One of the things that the Allies were dealing with in the Mediterranean in general and Italy specifically was the fact that by this time, uh, the end of 1943 and the first few days of 1944, uh, the Allies were continuing their buildup in Great Britain in anticipation of Operation Overlord, the uh, invasion of, of Normandy that would uh, happen in June of 44. And so uh, a lot of ships, men, and equipment were being siphoned out of the Mediterranean and taken up to uh, Britain to prepare for Overlord. So Churchill realized that, that he was running out of time. The, the window for uh, making this end run was rapidly closing, and so the decision was made, um, let's, let's do this thing as, as soon as possible, and uh, we don't have enough ships, we don't have enough men, we don't have enough equipment, um, but we're going to do it anyway in hopes that it will frighten the Germans and cause Kesselring to pull his 10th Army off of the Gustav line, because the last thing you want as a commander is to have uh, enemy troops in your rear, and uh, Clark and Alexander and Churchill were all expecting that Kesselring would be so panicked by the fact that uh, the Allies were landing behind the Gustav line that uh, he would say, well, you know, that's not a good situation. Uh, My men could get trapped down there, and I better pull them out and and head off to the Alps. But uh, Kesselring somehow... Uh, by scraping the bottom of several barrels, was able to uh, round up enough troops from other parts of Italy, from Yugoslavia, from France, and bring them in to bolster not only the Gustav line, but to to form a uh, an iron ring around the Anzio beachhead and restrict the Allies from uh, marching on Rome. So that that's how this whole thing uh, came about in a very simplified form. Okay. Well, I'm glad you explained that way because, like you said, I mean, there's the Allies have limited men, limited supplies, limited LSTs, limited ships. And so it's not the idea that they're going to land north of the Gustav line and then push south and attack it and try to break it. They're just they're I guess they're thinking or hoping that just by their sheer presence, the uh, Gustav line is now untenable. They need to pull back. And so that helps me understand kind of their optimism uh, going into this thing. But again, like you said, they have limited supplies. I do have to ask, is anybody, whether it's the men, whether it's the officers, is anybody at this point maybe a little shy, a little gun shy when it comes to amphibious landings because of Salerno? Did that have an effect on anybody's thinking before the landing? Well, I I think it it had a great deal of uh, impact on the thinking of both uh, Mark Clark and the Sixth Corps mm. commanding general, uh, John Lucas, um, at the Salerno landings in September of 43, uh, Lucas, uh, his command, the Sixth Corps, which is made up of American and British units, mm-hmm. um, struck at Salerno, which is south of Naples. And uh, the Germans put up a, a very... Uh, strong defense against this amphibious force and nearly pushed them back into the sea. They, I think they, mm. you know, they, they escaped uh, by the skin of their teeth uh, from being pushed back into the sea. And, and so Clark was worried about 
you know, the possibility that this might happen again if the Germans were on alert at at Anzio. And Lucas was certainly worried about it because uh, in his diary, which I quote frequently uh, Mm -hmm. in Desperate Valor, uh, he talks about uh, not wanting to to, uh, do anything too bold and foolish that will cause him his command. And in fact, uh, Mark Clark had told Lucas, don't do anything uh, foolish, don't stick your neck out, as we did at Salerno, uh, the most important thing for you to do is to build up the beachhead, uh, forget about going to Rome right away, even though mm-hmm. Rome was only 40 miles from Anzio, and, uh, and just consolidate until we can bring more troops and supplies uh, up to you. And then, uh, you know, if, if the Germans, you know, uh, haven't by that time pulled out of the Gustav line, you know, then, then we'll make a, a play either hitting hitting the uh, Gustav line with your troops coming down from the north or or going directly towards Rome. So it was it was a very vague order that that Clark gave Lucas and I think Lucas has traditionally been seen as the scapegoat that he he wasn't aggressive that he didn't take advantage of the opportunity that this surprise landing at Anzio had had handed him on a silver platter and um he was he was reluctant um to risk losing you know 36,000 men who came in on the initial wave and um i think history has judged that he had uh, very you know good reasons for for being afraid for not knowing what the enemy situation was and not wanting to risk um this this uh, large force that he was in uh, in charge of. I, I'm I'm glad you said that because this to me was the most one of the most poignant moments in your book, because we all know that Churchill is bold and is and, and is daring, and as soon as someone tells him, "Hey, we're going to do an amphibious landing, we're going to do an end run, whatever," you know he is going to say yes to that. You know he's going to get excited, but at the same time, you know he's also going to expect results. Um, and then his British chief of staff, uh, Alexander, probably feels the same way, or he's going to take his cue from Churchill. But then you do have that conversation between Clark and Lucas, you know, with you, when your superior officer says, look, just land, build up defense, don't do anything yet. I mean, that's the equivalent of an order, even though it's not, maybe it's not spelled out on a piece of paper. So again, I was surprised that everybody is suddenly turning on Lucas when he is doing exactly, as far as I could tell, what General Clark told him to do or what not to do. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Yeah, and and uh, as as the stalemated Anzio continues, um, Clark is getting pressure from Alexander. Well, you know why isn't Lucas moving out? You've got to build a fire under him, and and Alexander is getting pressure from Churchill. Why why do we now have two uh, stalemates going on in Italy? This was supposed to have been a a brilliant uh, flanking maneuver. And it would cause the the Germans to panic. Why aren't they panicking? And at one point, you know, Churchill famously uh, says to Alexander, "I I thought we were hurling a wildcat onto the beach, and all we got was a stranded whale." <laughs> and and uh, you know that that pretty much sums it up. That um, yeah. that poor John Lucas is being not only you know attacked by the Germans, but he's being attacked by his superiors as well. He was in a, a really a no-win situation because if he had 
been bold and realized that um, there was no opposition of any uh, strength to the Anzio landings, uh, and he had decided, oh, okay, 40 miles, we can make Rome in a, in a day or two, I'm going to do it. You know, he's going to create this salient because there's only one highway that goes from Anzio to Rome, oh. and he's going to run all of his troops up this narrow ribbon of, of highway, and, um, you know, Castle Ring could have uh, just uh, torn it to shreds, and uh, they would not have gotten to Rome, or if they had, they might have had a handful of men who would, you know, obviously not be able to liberate right. the Eternal City. So it's a, it's a real... It's a real conundrum that uh, Lucas finds himself in, and I wanted to portray that situation to the readers uh, so they would understand that, yeah, you can look at this uh, operation as an offensive failure, but there were reasons for it. It wasn't just uh, the the troops didn't fight hard or weren't well-led or whatever. It was all the mixed messages that... uh, their corps commander had received from higher ups that uh, caused him to realize that uh, dashing for Rome would not be the uh, the prudent thing to do. Absolutely, and as we're about to see, as we as we talk more about your book, I mean, there was um, incre- um, incredible bravery on both sides, uh, attention to duty that's going to lead to some horrific scenes, but we'll get to that in a moment. And and the last thing before we move on to the actual landing, and of course uh, you were touching on this, the Allies don't know exactly what Kessel Ring has got to throw at it. So again, Mm -hmm. to go into this with that kind of ignorance just... Um, I guess nobody in the on the American side was reading Sun Tzu. I have no idea, but to, to go against the enemy and to not know their numbers is is a very scary proposition. Yeah, the the uh, Allied intelligence at that point was very very uh, lacking, and um, I think there was more wishful thinking mm. on the part of the Allies uh, than there was actual uh, solid uh, intelligence that would lead to perhaps better decisions than what were ultimately made. Okay. So so let's let's uh, get into this. Could you could you walk us through the initial landings and um what is awaiting the allies as they come ashore? Okay, the um the landings took place uh before dawn on January 22nd, 1944. Uh there were 36,000 British and American troops that had um climbed into their landing craft in uh, Naples and uh, the night before and came up the coast and hit the, uh, the beaches. The British landed at what was called Peter Beach. That was the code name, which is about five miles north of Anzio. Uh, the American 3rd Infantry Division landed at X-Ray Beach, which is about three to five miles south of Anzio and Natuno. Natuno and Anzio are kind of twin cities, you might say, uh, on the coast. And then there were um, a ranger force uh, and uh, engineers and paratroopers who came in by ship into Anzio Harbor. Um, the whole invasion area was probably about 10 to 15 miles in length. Um, and so they're landing with 36,000 men. Barely a shot is fired as uh, the men hit the beach. They were all expecting kind of a Salerno reception where 
the Germans were throwing everything they had at them to stop the invasion at the water, but uh, there there was almost no uh, German defense uh, at any of the landing beaches, and um, the men were ordered to move inland and, and dig in and, and wait for further orders. And so um, dawn on the 22nd of January comes and, and goes, and the men are still sitting in their foxholes uh, wondering, you know, well, when are we going to move out? Uh, right. This isn't quite the way we envisioned this invasion <laughs> taking place. I thought we were going to charge all the way to Rome, uh, but we're being ordered to, to hold our position. So there was a, there was a lot of initial um, anticipation and enthusiasm on the part of most of the soldiers hitting the beaches, uh, which um, soon within a day or two uh, started to dissolve into um, grumbling about why are we just, you know, sitting here on the beach uh, doing nothing when we could be driving inland. We, we have no opposition in front of us. And that was the, the moment uh, when Kesselring was notified early on the 22nd of January that the Allies had landed at Anzio in force. Uh, he wasted no time uh, putting some contingency plans into effect and bringing in uh, as many troops as he could spare from other parts of, of Italy uh, without having to cannibalize uh, his uh, 10th Army on the uh, Gustav line. So um, this, this uh, you might say, lack of aggressive action on the part of Lucas. We've explained why he didn't uh, feel terribly aggressive at this point. Um, uh, Enabled Kesselring to to surround the the beachhead. uh, And and for most of the uh, four months that the Americans and British were at Anzio, uh, they never got more than about 10 miles inland and before they ran into the wall of German defenders who were uh, laying siege to the uh, the beachhead area. Mm. Now, for me, in your book, you do you do a very great job of the study of opposites that Kesselring and Lucas were. Kesselring knows it's going to take him time to get some force together to to check these guys before they, you know, 36,000 men, before they come in. So first, he just needs enough men to hold them. But like you said, he gets lucky as in they don't even try to come much further in, inland. So Kesselring is innovative. He's, he's grabbing men where he can. He's He's issuing orders. Eventually, he's going to have to put someone in charge of this. He can't do it himself because he's got the entire uh, country to look after. But he literally jumps into action. Yes, yes, the Allies got a, got one over on them. They were able to land pretty much unopposed. But now Kesselring's kicking it into high gear. Um, mm-hmm. And now and now, and now it's off to the races to see if they can move forces there before the Americans are going mm-hmm. to move out. Yeah. Um, what Kesselring had... Uh, in addition to the 10th Army down on the Gustav line, he also had a basically just a headquarters for an army to be formed called the 14th German Army. And um, Eberhard von Mackensen, a Prussian officer, uh, was the uh, commanding general of, uh, of the 14th Army, which you know basically only existed on paper. But once um, the invasion took place, Kesselring uh, said, well, I'm going to need to have 
I'm going to need to activate a, a 14th Army here. And so all of these uh, other units that he uh, was able to bring in from other parts of the Mediterranean um, were uh, assigned to the 14th Army. And so it was um, von Mackensen's men who basically encircled the uh, the Anzio beachhead and uh, brought in you know, all sorts of artillery. And there was... Uh, there were Luftwaffe planes available, um, and um, they really did an outstanding job of, of defending the Anzio beachhead uh, and preventing the Allies from going anywhere for for several months. So, so the Germans start to send forces. They've got the um, the Allied beachhead surrounded. They're not going anywhere. Plus, they don't know this, but the Allies aren't even trying to go anywhere. Um, how long is it before Lucas starts to get pressure from above, despite what General Clark warned him of early, to actually do something to to move out? I think it was just a matter of a few days uh, before Churchill you know, began to, uh, well, he had, he had uh, sent a cable to Joseph Stalin uh, in the Soviet Union. Um, Stalin had wanted uh, a second front to relieve the pressure on the Soviet Union. And um, the the whole Italian uh, operation from September of 43 on was supposed to have been that second front. And, um, and Churchill, you know, sends this, sends this cable Shortly after the invasion, saying, "You know, we're we're we're, we're helping you out here. We've got a, a major operation going on in Italy that's going to tie down German forces here, so they can't be used against you. And in fact, uh, Hitler might have to uh, transfer some of his troops that are facing you to Italy to prevent uh, an Allied breakthrough." up through Italy, through the Alps, and into Austria and southern Germany. Um, and so uh, Churchill was, was very um, hopeful that that this uh, Operation Shingle was going to do the trick. Uh, didn't quite work out that way, but uh, it, it nevertheless prevented the Germans from transferring units from Germany, where, I mean from, from Italy, to other parts of, of Europe, um, certainly against uh, uh, Stalin's men on, on the Eastern Front. And uh, eventually when the Operation Overlord took place, uh, prevented them from uh, moving units out of Italy to, uh, to try and stop the Allied invasion in Normandy. So, um, you know, it was, it was kind of like a three-legged stool. If you, if you remove one leg, then the whole thing falls apart. Uh, and... Uh, it was basically a balancing act that, uh, you know, Hitler wanted to um, stop the invasion and, and basically turn Italy into a, a quiet front where the Allies had no chance of, of winning. And at that point, he could have moved some units out. But um, because it was still a very active front, uh, he was not uh, offered that option. You make a good point. I mean, this is the beginning of uh, 1944. Hitler's still got options. He's still got, um, he's still got troops to move around. He can. I mean, I think we can all see the writing on the wall as far as the overall war. But he can certainly make the Allies bleed, and and, mm-hmm. and obviously that's one of the things he wants to do. So, mm-hmm. so Churchill makes this incredibly bold statement to Stalin, and now it's not being backed up. 
Mm-hmm. Um, what kind of, in what form does uh, General Lucas get pressure, and then what happens after that? Well, um, Churchill was was very dissatisfied with Lucas, and um, he he obviously couldn't fire an American general, <laughs> uh, right. but uh, he uh, he put pressure on Alexander to put pressure on his subordinate, who was Mark Clark, to put pressure on Lucas to come up with you know something a little more bold than just lying uh, in the foxhole and taking everything that the Germans could throw at him. Um, so, you know, there was a chain of command that, that came into effect here. And uh, I, I think that, that Clark realized that um, if there if there was a disaster at Anzio, it would cost him his job. Probably Alexander would lose his command as well. Um, because there was one thing, you know, and it wasn't just, you know, specifically exclusive to the Americans and British, but uh, any army where the commander is not uh, showing forceful leadership is generally likely to get him replaced. And that's certainly... Uh, what happened to Lucas, but we're getting ahead of ourselves. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So Clark has got a light of fire under General Lucas. Right, right. And and General Lucas is still, you know, operating under the original order he got uh, and the indication from Clark, you know, not to do anything too aggressive or too foolish. Uh, you know, we can't afford to, to lose six corps. Um, so, you know, just, just hold the beachhead and we'll we'll be sending more reinforcements to you and uh at some point the german line has to give either at anzio or, or on the gustav line and uh but you know we have a situation with two stalemates and uh everybody was getting frustrated by that this podcast could not exist without the help of sponsors like yahoo finance when it comes to your financial future You think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. Now, you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses, Yahoo Finance. I've stressed this in my podcast about command and control, which is exactly what Yahoo Finance is. You can see all your investments and retirement accounts in one place. You can consolidate your views from multiple accounts into one hub and access the expert analysis you need to tend to your entire portfolio with confidence. Yahoo Finance has been around for more than 25 years, and they've worked things out. You've got the tools you need right at your fingertips. I open up my Yahoo Finance, and within seconds, I can see how my stocks and investments are doing. And basically, investing is all about growth. And in order to grow, you need to know what's going on. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. So so under um, General Clark's either personal vision or whatever, Lucas decides it's time to do something to push out, to try to take some nearby territory. Um, mm-hmm. Could you describe that to us, please? Yeah. Um, as I mentioned, that uh, Anzio is uh, a resort town on the coast about 40 miles south 
of, uh, of Rome. Uh, about 10 miles north of Anzio is a little community called Aprilia, which was established in 1936 by Mussolini as a way of reclaiming the marshland that surrounds the Anzio area. And about seven or eight miles north of Aprilia is a town called Campo Leone Station, and there's a railroad line that, that runs through there. And um, so that's about 18 or so miles north of Anzio. And it was felt that uh, Lucas could safely push all the way to Campo Leone Station uh, without creating a, a slender salient. It would be a bulge, uh, but it wouldn't be a, you know, a narrow salient that could be um, easily chopped up. And so uh, Lucas orders the British 1st Infantry Division to uh, make the drive onto Campo Leone Station and, uh, and, and trying to move up, but they're doing so at about the time that all these other German units are coming into the area that Kesselring has ordered there. And um, so as the further north the British go, the stiffer the resistance becomes. And uh, there's a series of very heavy uh, firefights that take place. Uh, the Germans are bombarding the British positions with artillery, and uh, they're sending uh, masses of tanks and human wave attacks, kind of very reminiscent of the World War One, where there's a no man's land and uh, and men are trying to you know cross it to get to the other uh, army's lines and. Um, the the Germans are taking a lot of casualties, of course, because they're exposed during their attacks. But the British too um, are are really getting hammered, and uh, their positions become untenable. And so they begin falling back to about where Aprilia is, about like I said, about seven or eight miles south of Campo Leone Station. And and the British try to form a defensive line, and they're bolstered by American units. Um, that are are strung out between Aprilia and Cisterna uh, off to the uh, east or the right flank of the Allied line. And um, so this, this becomes kind of a, a war of attrition for the next several weeks where the Germans will um, make a major push. Uh, the Allied line bends but doesn't break, and then there's a counterattack, and they regain some of the lost l- ground, and and then the Germans um, have a counter counterattack. So this goes back and forth for weeks, and um, uh, the the uh, the Allies are just you know losing hundreds of men a day, um, and um, trying to hold on as best they can, wondering if they'll get any reinforcements. Uh, of course, the Allies have the advantage; uh, they've got uh, more airplanes uh, than the Germans do, and they also have naval support, uh, the guns of, of which uh, could reach most of the German positions. And, and so there's just this tremendous back-and-forth, uh, uh, continuous battle that, that is taking place, and little villages are, are captured and then lost and then recaptured and lost, and it, and it just goes on and on. Um, for a period of, of several weeks uh, until 
you know, a little bit later into March when uh, neither side has the strength to uh, to push the other uh, opponents out of the way. Yeah, one of the things I don't think I truly appreciated was um, obviously both sides are feeding men into this um, meat grinder, and you you cover very well, and you go into minute detail because I, I you have personal accounts and diaries and things like that. But the Germans just kept throwing wave after wave after wave, and even though they're being beaten back, like you said, the Allies are suffering every time they do that. So it's they're literally bleeding each other to death. And I think um, even though Lucas landed with 36,000 people, because the Allies keep feeding men in, at some point soon after this, they have like 76,000, which is great. However, the Germans have roughly 95,000 or something at least comparable Mm -hmm. to what the Allies. So they're both, it's it's a, a meat grinder. No one's getting anywhere, but they're throwing even more men into it. And I was just staggered by the fact that they kept going in. They're getting these orders. They're exhausted. They've lost so many friends, but they just get up and do what they're told and charge right back into the front lines. Yeah, yeah. One one of the things we haven't talked about is mm-hmm. the the weather situation. Mm-hmm. That this is in the Italian winter, which is notoriously cold and rainy, and um, so the the Germans are coming across these waterlogged, muddy fields that are being churned up with you know explosions, very similar to. Um, Verdun and the Somme and uh, many of the battlefields of World War One, and um, and the Allies are are in their holes, which are filling up with water, and and guys are getting trench foot and uh, suffering, you know, maladies uh, related to to cold injuries, and uh, it was just, you know, the battle was bad enough, but it it was, you know, beyond miserable because of the uh, weather conditions uh, that both sides had to endure. And, and one of the things, too, that I, I wanted to do with this book, Ray, was mm-hmm. to, to um, try and introduce as many German accounts of the battle. If, if you, you know, think about all of the World War II books that you've read that are written from an American or British point of view, mm-hmm. that's all you get is the American and British point of view. You don't really hear... What the Germans um, were, you know, experiencing, and um, as it turned out, I have a a friend in Netuno, the twin city of Anzio, who had started um, the uh, museum there, and he had uh, obtained a number of letters and interviews that he had uh, had with uh, German veterans who came back after the war uh, as veterans often do to their former battlefields and uh he got them to write down their experiences and uh he was so gracious uh allowing me to quote from these letters so now we not only have the american and the british uh soldiers talking about what they were going through but but i was able to bring in what the germans were experiencing in their own words and it it uh, i think gave a complete picture of of just how awful uh, the battle for Anzio was, and and it and it, I think it it makes it a little more well rounded because you know we we have a tendency here in America and maybe Britain too to just regard the Germans as the enemy, goose stepping Nazis, 
you know, mindlessly following Hitler. But when you when you get down to it and you see the kinds of experiences that these men wrote about, you realize, hey, they were just like us. You know, they were just young men caught up in a war that they didn't necessarily want, but they were defending their country just as we were defending ours. And they were just as brave as any American or British soldier um, and, and trying to follow orders as best they could. And, um, you know, that, that's, I think, a perspective that is often lost uh, when, when one reads about uh, uh, battles in World War II. Absolutely. It's certainly needed. And I certainly did appreciate that because you, you do, <clears throat> excuse me, you do start to feel for them like you're feeling for the, the British and the, um, and the Americans. And we haven't, we haven't um, given any stats yet as far as um, uh, wounded uh, casualties, but I mean, it is, it is quickly piling up on both sides. Mm-hmm. Um, so the Americans are, and, and, and I'm glad you mentioned the weather because, um, correct me if I'm wrong, but because the weather was so uncooperative, the advantage that the Allies had with air power is, is to a degree taken from them, which allows the Germans to just keep pounding and coming after the Allied positions. Right. The, um, <laughs> when you, when you, uh, have cloud cover, um, it kind of restricts the, um, the view of pilots and bombardiers, and uh, it, it kind of negates any sort of advantage that the, uh, that the air uh, campaign you know, might have had. Um, the, the, the Germans were, were skillful, even though they didn't have as many troops or uh, as many planes as uh, the Americans did, um, they certainly used them to, to good advantage and sometimes to bad advantage. I'm thinking about when, uh, when the uh, field hospitals at mm. the beachhead were, yes. were attacked by uh, German pilots and bombs were dropped on the hospital tents and nurses and, uh, and patients and doctors were, were all killed or wounded. Uh, in these attacks, some some of which were probably um, unprovoked, uh, and and some of which were probably accidental. Uh, there's a, an account in the book about a a German pilot being chased by a British Spitfire, and in order to get away, he jettisoned his bomb load and just happened to jettison right over the hospital and and um, caused a great deal of of damage. Um, but you know, it's, it's one of those terrible things that happen in war and, uh, certainly, uh, non-combatants were, you know, were, were sometimes targeted deliberately and sometimes accidentally. Right. And, and I'm glad you brought that up because not only did you have German accounts in there, but these nurses who are helping people, I mean, they are, because of the way the situation is, they're in the thick of it as well, and they're suffering. They're being bombed and strafed. So mm-hmm. the Allies are trying to push out. The Germans are trying to push them back into the sea. It is literally just these two sides just bludgeoning each other. And, and I'm not going to do it justice, so I'm not even going to try, but your, but your book just 
it does a great job of just having Mackinson just throw wave after wave after wave of all the men that Kessel Reagan can get him for to can get for him. The Allies hold them off, but again, both sides are just are just bleeding. But even though they're trying to break out now, they're not really getting anywhere for for uh, lots of different reasons. And so Lucas, his his immediate position is still in uh, a dire situation. Right. Um, one of the things that happened uh, in the, the first few days of, of February of 44 was uh, this is when Mackinson decided uh, he had enough men to try and uh, obey Hitler's edict to uh, lance the abscess south of Rome, which is a quote from Hitler. And he was certainly trying to do that, and, and Kesselring was doing everything to help him do that. That that's when the the human wave uh, attacks uh, really uh, hit their peak, and I think the the major attack was on February 16th, where the Germans just literally threw everything they had at the Americans and British, and uh, came within a whisker of of probably breaking the Allied line. And one one of the things too that I wanted to do in Desperate Valor was to really uh, home in on the incredible courage of the individual American and British soldier that, um, you know, what what they put up with, I think is, is uh, one of, you know, almost beyond description. Um, you know, words don't do it justice. Um, I, I, I wanted to get across the idea that uh, these men were putting everything they had on the line, um, fighting for their lives, fighting for their buddies' lives, um, and uh, doing everything they, they could to, to keep it from being pushed back into the sea. And I think as you read through it, uh, read through the book, you, you get this sense of this enormous resolve that all these guys were just scared out of their minds. I mean, you can't go into battle I don't care what war it is. You can't go into battle without being, you know, frightened, witless. Um, but to be able to perform your mission while being frightened, witless, I think is the, the definition of, of courage. And uh, I wanted, hopefully, to make that obvious throughout the book and uh, uh, and just, you know, pay a real tribute to the men who who stood and fought uh, it was you know beyond courage <laughs> it, right it's you know you, don't, you just don't there aren't enough adjectives uh, to um, explain what what they put up with and and how they managed to prevail yeah if I can give uh, an example from that, from your book real quick, um, and I apologize, I can't remember names, but there's one British officer who comes up to the front and he was talking, he was talking to uh, a British unit. They had just over a hundred men a couple of days ago. And then oh, they this, were, this was yeah. General Harmon with the first armored division. Yeah. If you want to take the story over, but by the time he gets there, they're down to like what? 16 men. If yes. I yes. And they, but and, they were and, calm about it. Right. Well, that's the British stiff upper lip, I right. guess. Uh, then right. Harmon, uh, who's uh, the commanding general of the First Armored Division, he comes up to uh, the front lines where a British unit is holding out. They've just had a, 
an attack during the night, uh, and they've managed to hold their position, and Harmon comes up there, and he looks around him, and he, there's, he's stepping over bodies. I mean, the, yeah. the battlefield is carpeted with dead, and uh, he sees a few British troops sticking their heads out of their foxholes, and um, he goes over and he says, you know, who's, who's in command here? And mm-hmm. I think it was a British corporal who uh, yes. said, well, you know, I, I guess I am, sir. All of our other officers or NCOs have been killed. And um, he said, we started with um, 100, 150-something like that, and, and we're down to 16. And Harmon writes, um, my great respect for the British fighting man, um, took place that morning, right? And uh, I, I think that really sums it up. I mean, if there's anything that uh, I, you know, it, it's weird uh, that many Americans have had kind of a dim view of of British uh, soldiers. Mm-hmm. You know that that, um, that for some reason they haven't gotten the respect uh, from Americans that they really deserve. And I right. and I think this uh, book. Uh, really, will will tell the reader if if you didn't think the the British were courageous, you need to read this book. Right, and yeah, for and, and I just have to say real quick before we move on. When I got to that part of your book, I just stopped for a minute and had to get up and just walk around, just imagining. And I don't do math very well, but I'm just imagining ninety percent of your union is gone, and you're like, well, we're doing the best we can, sir. And they were just so poised about yeah. it because they're being realistic but um what's happening to the british is also happening to the americans it's also happening to the germans i mean there are just thousands of deaths all over the place um but again you like you said they tried to push the allies back into the sea so there's a bit of a crisis because they come very close to doing so but now that that crisis is over with if i have my timeline correct and i apologize if i don't it's time for it seems like it's time for a change uh, at the head mm-hmm. of all this. Yeah, after, after the crisis uh, of the 16th and 17th of February is over, um, I think I say in there, uh, you know, it's you don't you don't change horses in a stream and you don't change generals in the middle of a battle. Um, that Clark and, and Alexander, at the urging of Churchill, said, "Well, we've weathered the crisis, but who knows? You know, the Germans will be back next week." Uh, with even more men, um, but you know maybe it's time to let Lucas go and get a more aggressive commander in his place. And so uh, Lucas is relieved of command, and uh, Lucian Truscott, uh, who was the commanding general of the Third Infantry Division, and, and you know one of a dozen of the great American generals of World War II, is uh, installed as commander of Sixth Corps, and. Uh, because of the fact that uh, you know the the Germans had just spent everything they had almost uh, on their attacks, um, it was probably a good time for Truscott to take over because now uh, the Allies could concentrate on taking the war back to the enemy. But they're still going to you know be stuck in their foxholes for quite some time. They're still going to have to put up with uh, heavy artillery barrages and Luftwaffe attacks and uh, but but Truscott uh, was kind of uh, the ag- aggressive commander that Lucas wasn't but Lucas performed his mission he he managed to uh, hold 
hold his position, not get driven back in the sea, and wait for reinforcements, which are now uh, beginning to come. You know, not not from America or you know some other place, but mostly uh, from units that were already being depleted on the Gustav line. But they're coming up to Anzio now, and uh, they're reinforcing Six Corps, and uh, everybody's you know kind of anxious for the the breakout to occur. But it's going to be uh, a few months before that that takes place. Right. Yeah. So when um. Lucas first lands, he's got 26,000 men, and then um, by early, or sometime in early February, he's got like 75,000 men, and now by the end of February, he's got roughly 100,000 men, so the numbers are going up on either side, they're hitting each other with everything they've got, there's massive casualties, but here's one thing we didn't really quite touch on, even though you you can easily predict it, is that there's just constant artillery fire from both sides just trying to hit anything they could, everybody's going underground and so you mm-hmm. get to the end of february what 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 are the germans thinking now or, or what what's their next plan well, at, at this point mackinson you know kind of takes a roll call of all of his units that are right. available to him and realizes you know that that they've been decimated they mm. they they no longer have the strength to break through um the allied line at the beachhead and and throw the allies back into the sea and so he you know i think kesselring is kind of urging him you know you got to come up with another another uh, counterattack and mackinson is saying well you know i just i don't have the strength right now if you get me some more troops you know maybe i can do it i think the best i can do now is just contain them at at the beachhead and um, hope that the war of attrition will have um, so infuriated the American and British publics that they will demand that their leaders um, come to a negotiated settlement with Hitler. I mean, that when, uh. when Hitler realized that he was going to lose the war, um, the best he could hope for was the fact that uh, the Americans and British might have a falling out and the, and the, the home front would be so disheartened by all of the losses that were being incurred that they would demand that their leaders uh, negotiate a peace with with Hitler um, but that was about his only hope left I, I have to ask real quick just slightly off topic um, was there ever a chance that Operation Shingle was going to be canceled, that everybody was going to be loaded back up onto the ships and taken out of there? Because, again, with the big push in February, I mean, they do push the Allies, uh, Allied troops back. Was there any ever serious conversation about uh, disembarking these troops? Um, I think there was some conversation. I don't know that it was all that serious because... Mm-hmm. Um, during this period of time that that the allies were still losing landing craft from the mediterranean it was being sent uh. up to britain and so they wouldn't have really had enough um shipping to be able to evacuate the uh, the mass of troops uh it would have been a a debacle i mean you know <laughs> um you you think of dieppe uh, as being a, a debacle, well, this would be Dieppe times 100. Right. There was a some talk about evacuating the nurses 
from the hospitals, mm-hmm. but uh, the the head nurse at one of the hospitals says, "No, we're not. We're not leaving. Wow. Um, you know, we're we're going to stick it out here. We don't we don't care. You know how long it takes. We're not we're not going anywhere. The men need us." And um, somebody said, "Well, you know, having women there is is a morale factor for the men. That you know, wow. As long as the the women are are staying and putting up with this, we can certainly do that." Right. And and so um, yeah, there there was no serious uh, talk or plan of pulling off the uh, the uh, invading force when it seemed obvious that they weren't going anywhere fast. Hmm. I, I just have to throw this in real quick before my next question. I had read somewhere, and it, it might have been a different book. I apologize, but um, there was something about some of the Allied troops who had minor wounds sometimes would not report them because they did not want to go back to the medical units because, like you said earlier, they were being bombed, they were being strafed, whether it was an accident or purpose, but they had heard stories that that place had to be rebuilt and redug a couple of times because of all the bombing. Yeah. Um, it's, it's an interesting thing that, that when, a, when a soldier is in combat, you know, that's the last place he wants to be. Uh, but there's there's you know one driving force that keeps him keeps him there, and that's his buddies. Uh-huh. That he doesn't want to des- desert his his buddies on the line while he's back you know recuperating in a hospital, mm-hmm. having warm food and a warm bed, uh, and knowing that his friends are still catching right. hell on the front lines. Wow. Um, somebody um, I interviewed once told me that. You know, we're we're not fighting for our flag or our country. We're fighting for our buddies. Right. And I and I think uh, you know that probably sums it up pretty well. Yeah, and and, and again, I apologize. I have to throw this out before the the next question. I saw you on um, YouTube, and and you were saying um, that a lot of these men after the war they certainly couldn't talk about it with their families, but when they got mm-hmm. together. I guess it was okay because you're sharing it with someone who was there and you don't really have to say all the words because they already know. And somehow that's therapeutic for them. Or that's, that's right. I, I've talked to so many children and wives of veterans who have said, gee, you know, they never, he never talked about his wartime experiences. He might tell a couple of funny stories, but he never talked about it. And they, and they couldn't understand that, and it took me a while to realize why. And that was when they went off to war, they did so to protect their country and to protect their families. Mm-hmm. And and uh, part of that protection meant keeping their families from knowing the types of terrible situations that they were in. And um, you know, besides the censorship that prevented uh, soldiers from talking about where they were and what they were going into too much detail about what they were doing, you know, they, the, the soldiers would write home and say, oh, having a wonderful time in sunny Italy, working on my tan, <laughs> swimming in the, uh, in the sea, and uh, all, right. all is wonderful, yeah. when the reality was 180 degrees different from that. And when they got home, they couldn't very well say, well, you know, all those uh, happy letters I sent home, well, it wasn't anything like that at all. But when they would go off to a unit reunion or hang out at the VFW or the American Legion Hall, there were other people who had shared 
similar experiences who had put their lives on the line, and they could they could swap war stories. Then uh, I can't tell you the number of veterans I've interviewed who have said, "Well, I've never told my family this, but since you're a veteran and uh, you're a historian, I can tell you." And many of I, and I've I've received letters and emails from. Uh, veterans' families who said, until I read your book, I didn't know what my husband or my father or my uncle went through and why he never would talk about the war. Right. And uh, so that that's, uh, that's a very moving uh, mm-hmm. response um, when, when you hear that from veterans and from their families. Just, just another example of the human condition. So um, <laughs> getting back to, the, to your book, so March 4th comes... And I just have to ask, obviously both sides are exhausted. Uh, there, There's no unit that hasn't been touched, decimated, exhausted, whatever. Is it officially decided by both sides to go into a siege at this point, or, or does the attacks just de-evolve that way? I think the, the attacks uh, just kind of wither away mm-hmm. because, uh, you know, the, the Germans can't expend any more men. To uh, to keep charging the Allied positions and and the Allies don't have orders yet to uh, um, break out of the breach, beachhead and go attack the Germans and so there's a lot of artillery fire that's exchanged uh, but you know spring is coming the weather's getting better uh, I, I'm sure that Kesselring realized that the Allies you know were going to to try something uh-huh. in the spring and um, and sure enough. Uh, in May, I think it was May 11th, that the uh, uh, it was going to be a two-prong breakout. That uh, down on the Gustav Line, the uh, British and Americans were going to make this major push uh, to try and dislodge the Germans down there. And once they accomplished that, which they had been trying to accomplish since the previous October, uh, but once you know it it happens, that'll be the signal for the the Anzio Beachhead troops to begin their breakout, uh, which starts on May 24th. And um, so as as it turned out, uh, the, the Gustav line began to crumble, and the uh, American and British troops began moving northward toward Rome, and that um, that was the time that the, that the Allies at Anzio staged their breakout. And... Uh, I remember one of one of the German soldiers who was taken prisoner during the breakout um, talks about having been on the Eastern Front, but that the breakout from Anzio was the most vicious thing he had ever experienced, uh, which gives you an idea of the level of, of uh, combat that was going on there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think there was, when they did their breakout or when they started, there was like... 1,500 artillery pieces <clears throat> fired on the German lines for like a constant 40 minutes. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, just, I mean, it can, they literally turned over that part of the earth surface. I mean, it's just a staggering. But we have purposefully not talked about the last 150 pages of your book. We want to leave that for the for the listeners. Um, so um, before we go, I just have to ask one question. This is just a, a, from a fan, a, a personal favor. If you could tell us the story about um, a, a young man who was in this battle, who goes on to be uh, a very well-known and very famous uh, TV uh, star. 
Yeah, he was uh, a young man from uh, Minneapolis uh, who was in the 3rd Infantry Division, and uh, he came ashore in the first wave. A um, few weeks of fighting go, goes by, and, and uh, he's on a night attack and uh, getting close to a German machine gun position, and the Germans open up on him and his squad, and, and he's hit in the leg and, and badly wounded, and finally a, a medic comes to his rescue and, and gets him back to a field hospital where he's able to recuperate. And then uh, after the war, um, he, uh, he kind of gravitates to Hollywood mm-hmm. and uh, changes the spelling of his name and uh, he's now the actor James Arness, who is best known for his role as Marshal Matt Dillon in the TV series Gunsmoke. Um, there, there are so many stories uh, um, similar to that in in the book that. Um, mm-hmm. uh, but I do like to to focus in on on James Arness and uh, and and talk about him and and Audie Murphy, the most decorated soldier of the war and and to go into detail about the the uh, heroics uh, performed by 26 uh, Americans who earned the medal of honor during the Anzio campaign uh, it's an incredible story of courage and survival and hardship and and just uh senseless bravery i guess you could call it and uh, you know the the title desperate valor comes from a, a quote by Winston Churchill, who pays tribute to, you know, what what the men at Anzio did for for four months. Yeah, uh, Mr. Whitlock, thank you very much. Uh, as you can imagine, I probably have twenty five more questions. I would love to to talk to you, but. Um, You've got a life to live, and I've got to go take care of my family. But anyways, I just want to thank you for your time. Uh, Desperate Valor, Triumph at Anzio, an incredible book. And I think you said it's just recently come out, correct? That's right, the end of October. So thank you, Ray, so much for the interview. It was a a great uh, conversation. Hello, everyone. Ray here. So I hope you enjoyed that because I probably will have Mr. Whitlock back to discuss some of his other World War II books. And as always, please don't forget, if you want to help support the show, um, listen to my show on the Himalaya podcast app. You can um, download it um, from Google Play Store or wherever you get apps, and that will help me out a lot. And you don't have to pay anything, so I really do appreciate if you could do that for me. And I'll see you as soon as I can with the American version, the American point of view of the attack on Pearl Harbor. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org.